This is precisely why he had to go to such lengths to establish for you a place whereby you could run from these areas of darkness and these areas of confusion into the bright light of his love for you and his son on a cross. Welcome to the Stand Firm podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, here as usual with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Church Anglican in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you guys doing? Great. I'm great, Nick. I'm doing excellently myself. My Father's Day gift finally arrived in the mail yesterday. It was one of those Flexipong sets. Have you seen the ads for this on your Instagram? Flexipong? You, can, what is it? you hook it up. It's a net. You hook it up to any table and turn it into a ping pong table. <laughs> my, my wife and I played it last night. We had a, we had a grand old time. Did you? What, what, on what table? Did you, on your Just a table? folding table in the basement. It was great. You, you any play with table. The normal, and you play with the normal ping pong paddles? Or? Yeah. It's amazing. Wow. I highly recommend it to you. Worth the wait. (laughs) That's right. Well, (laughs) my kids just draw me pictures. When they were younger, that was fine. They didn't have any money, but now they have money. Yeah. And they still draw me pictures. I owe you one back rub. (laughs) I've been giving my parents a framed picture of me for all of their various um, celebrations (laughs) since I was in fifth grade. (laughs) My kids gave me a, a box of golf balls that they hand personalized, which actually nice. is pretty sweet, really. Although I've already lost half. I was going to say, do you have any left? Um, <laughs> no, but people are people are really excited when they find those. Like, yeah. I don't know who the dad dad guy is, but he is a terrible golfer. <laughs> <laughs> awesome guy, terrible golfer. That's right. Beloved should not be playing this game. (laughs) Listen, guys, today we're going to have our very first listener suggested conversation. Last week, we talked about free will and we had a couple listeners write in suggesting that we didn't go deep enough. So we're going to revisit and extend that conversation this week. First, the listener asked us to talk more specifically about the differences between Arminianism and Calvinism and quote, the issue of how God's grace is applied and how free we are to respond to it, end quote. This uh, question framed Arminianism as at least potentially more orthodox than Pelagianism, which we talked about at length. Another listener asked us to respond more directly to Molinism, which is an attempt to uphold both divine providence and human freedom. So, Uh, Prepare yourselves. At some point in our discussion, I'm going to ask you to define Molinism without putting our listeners to sleep. Um, Actually, why don't we start with some definitions? You guys want to help me out? We have a lot of vocabulary associated with freedom and the Christian life. Calvinism, Arminianism, Pelagianism, Molinism, Monergism, Synergism. What do these words mean? Where should we start? Well, I mean, I guess, you know, there's lots of different avenues where these or areas where these different ideas differ but i think we're talking specifically about the relationship between god's grace and free will and god's sovereignty and 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 human choice so we should probably differentiate just in that that kind of narrow category and so calvinists or i mean i, I think that's probably not the right term because right uh, we're we're anglicans the 39 articles are clearly reformed in character although they weren't influenced directly by john calvin who was a little bit later uh, who had 
his primary influence a little bit later. But Martin so, Bootser and yeah, Pierre Marvin, yeah, he's reformed. And, so maybe a better word Bur be Bullinger for sure. They were all mm -hmm. in in, in uh, Zwingli for that matter. I mean, a lot of the yeah, a lot of the uh, thought from which Calvin sprung um, was from there, right? Contains in our prayer book. So sorry, Matt. No, so, so we should probably use reformed instead of Calvinist, maybe. But the the so the way re reformed people tend to think through grace and and free will is that of course the human person being uh, completely in every faculty bent toward the self and away from god uh, total depravity i guess we could say for lack of a better descriptor um we, we we the human person by will and nature will never turn himself or herself toward god and, and trust in jesus christ it's all uh our lives are marked by self-exaltation and self-love um, and so the only way that anyone ever comes to a saving knowledge of and faith in Christ is by God's extending his grace to that, to that person. And all those people to whom God gives that grace are considered the elect. So now there's a lot of caricatures of Arminianism that are out there, but, but I think Arminius and his followers, the remonstrants, would, would agree that by nature, we are unable and unwilling to turn to God on our own. But Arminius would say that God extends his kind of prevenient grace to all people, kind of influencing them toward himself. And so everybody, because of that grace, everybody is able by that grace to choose to turn to Christ or not. Um, and so you have this idea of the ultimate definitive choice for God resting with, with the individual person who, yes, has been freed by grace, but who must make that final, that final decision um, for Jesus on, on his own. And so it really comes down to the, the basic difference in Calvinism and Arminianism when it comes to grace and free will is where does the final decision rest? Does, it, does right. the final decision rest with the human person who's influenced by by God and freed by His grace, or does it, does the actual grace that God gives a person bring necessarily that person to the moment of faith? Yeah, and this is I think most people run into this at least theologically or historically in in Methodism. I mean, this was this was one of John Wesley's. Uh, I mean, I know it predates John Wesley, but in the American context, this was um, a hallmark of sort of Wesleyan spirituality was the prevenient grace, which prompted and developed into more, even more popularizing versions of like Dwight Moody, D.L. Moody, and, you know, the uh, sort of the revivalistic impulse that was an attempt to take these people who had the ability, if they decided and had the right um, nudging or, or sort of provocation to choose, well, then we need, we talked about this last week, then we need to, to make sure our churches are as sort of successful in that in, in that um, persuasion as possible. You know, so you had the, what do they used to call it, the, the, the rumbling box or something, you know, in the front, like this where the, the spirit would be the most present in these <laughs> revivals and it would be the, the most frightening. The anxiety you, know, you would have like hell house, you know, would be for in front of high schoolers. Like this would be, this is how terrible it's going to be. And you have the ability, so choose this day. You know, it goes back to the Old Testament. You've got all of these sort of, use of the scriptures even, uh, which all, again, pre, it, it, it depends on your fundamental assumption, like we talked about last week, is the human will, even with prevenient grace, uh, free agent with respect to salvation, not with respect to the various ways of sinning, um, does God elect 
which it seems to be the, the well, I would argue the, the narrative of scripture, or are, are, is he waiting there for us to, as it were, elect ourselves or to choose? And, you know, I think that there remains to this day a, a divide, obviously, one that unfortunately is not a distinction without a difference. I mean, there's some significant different ways of, of preaching, teaching, and pastoring, uh, depending on how you view this way of God's action in the life of, the, of, of a person. Can you guys make a distinction for me between Arminianism then and Pelagianism? Uh, yeah, Pelagianism. So Ar- Arminianism is, I would argue, much more orthodox than, than Pelagianism. Pelagianism teaches that the human person in his natural state has the ability to choose um, to trust in Jesus or not, to do, do good works or not, to please God or not. That, so there's no prevenient um, grace required. You don't need you don't need prevenient grace. So, you know, Pelagius was really incensed because I think he read some a work by Augustine in which Augustine said uh, was was kind of repeating a prayer, "Oh Lord, command what you will and then grant what you command." In other words, mm-hmm. help me to do as you've commanded me to do. And Pelagius was incensed. What do you mean, help me to do? You've already made me a free human being who can do good. I I am able to do good. I don't need to wait for God's grace to give me the grace to give me the power or the strength to do, um, do what's right. So, but Arminius would, would agree with Calvin on the idea that by nature and will, humanity is fallen and unable, no one's able to, to move himself toward genuine obedience and or, and or genuine faith. Did Arminius say that the prevenient grace was extended to, to all or just to those who ultimately would be given the choice? Yeah, I've been reading a lot about this this week. Um, so the idea originally had a couple of months ago <laughs> was Arminius was saying he would look down the quarter of time and whoever he, he foresaw, God foresaw would believe he, to those he extended the necessary grace to believe. But it does seem like, and maybe I can be corrected by more, more uh, well-read Arminian reader or listener, um, that uh, that he did have the sense of, of prevenient grace given to all, although the elect would be those to whom God understood, recognized, God, who those who for God foresaw would believe when they were given that uh, prevenient grace. I I mean honestly, I sort of see the entire the entire question, and I've said this before, as a way of apologizing for God, as a way of, um, and in fact, I see a lot of this conversation fundamentally like the whole theodicy question in itself as a um, a faithless speculation on a God about whom you feel embarrassed in front of your friends. I mean, that's what I think. I think this is a, I think there's a long history of philosophers trying to apologize to what Schleiermacher would call the culture despisers about um, a God who does what he wills. I mean, this is a terrifying, horrible thing. And this is the unknown God, you know, it's the unpreached God. Like when you begin to speculate about who God chooses and why, and at what level he operates and why he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Well, you were talking about the terrifying Isaiah 6 God, the one that the whole world is, is brought low before, which is the point. That's the point mm-hmm. of, of a God being God, who is not mocked, who is all-powerful, omniscient, and holy. And in front of that, no one can stand. 
And that's why this unpreached God, as it were, is rightly mysterious, terrifying, and, and seemingly capricious, and which is why the flip side of the unpreached is the preached God. And so we know, in fact, what, in, what God has done, what he has said, where he can be found, and what needs to be said to lost and hurting people in the midst of their, of their sinful, um, self-destructive lives. And that's the work of the church, not to sit around and philosophize about um, who God, you know, uh, <laughs> keep, keep thinking of um, that scene of Monty Python. Let's not argue and bicker <laughs> over who killed whom. But she was the bride. This is oh, supposed uh, to be a happy occasion. That's right. Um, but, but I don't like to think of it as losing a son more than I like to think of it as gaining a daughter. That's my amazing Monty Python. The point of that is, I and I, you know, I can easily be accused of dismissing um, uh, things just because I don't find them interesting and not taking seriously the argumentation. And I've and I I, uh, I resemble that remark with respect to like deep philosophical argumentation about um, middle knowledge, like we talk, we're talking about Molinism, you know, but there's a, apparently a variation of Arminianism. But the idea that, that we are supposed to ultimately be able to, to justify God, you know, theodicy, that's essentially what the word means. And we are supposed to be able to explain and apologize for him in a way that makes us feel better about the fact that some people aren't saved. I mean, that's a terrible thing. And I hope, I don't know how that will be reconciled, uh, but it's, it, that seems to be the case this side of heaven. And until then, all I can do about it is preach as loudly and as often and as with as whatever courage and conviction I've been given um, that I can. And I think that, that, um, that, yeah, well, that's where I fall down on this issue. And so I apologize if I'm too dismissive of it, um, because I know a lot of wonderful Presbyterian, I mean, um, Methodist people, um, and I know a lot of people who who are probably good Arminians. You know, like John Piper used to say, the old-fashioned Arminians at least believed in God, you know? I mean, it's like you have these sort of new, sort of open theist, you know, sort of speculative, quote-unquote, theologians who whatever God about which they are talking is not one that is revealed in the scriptures, and certainly not in the historic creeds or confessions. And so, you know, to the extent that Arminius was trying to be an evangelist and apologist to his people, I, I appreciate it. But at the end of the day, the scandal of the cross and the reality of a God that is not you will continue to be an affront to all who have not been given ears to hear or eyes to see. Would you say that it was a fair condensation of the difference between Reformed theology and Arminianism, at least as it relates to um, salvation by grace, that a Reformed theologian would say that the grace of God is irresistible, and an Arminian would say that the grace of God is resistible? Yeah, no, I think it's a really good way of looking at it. Because ultimately, because really what, the, what, the, what it comes down to it, for the Arminian is what does the individual person do with the grace he's necessarily been given by God? Does he choose to go toward Christ or not? Yeah. Um, whereas for the Calvinist, you know, the, uh, the idea or the reformed person, you go back to that text in John uh, six forty four. no one comes to the son unless the father draws him. Mm-hmm. And that, that word for draw is really a violent word. You're, you're, because because the fish doesn't want to be drawn out of the <laughs> out of the water in the nets and drawn into the boat, and that's the same thing for our own hearts and wills. We would never want Christ because we are we are in our flesh at enmity with Him, and we will not do the will of God, nor can we. It's Romans <laughs> Romans eight seven. We just won't right. do it. So it has to be 
in a sense, a violent act. I mean, not violent in a, in a like a, I know sometimes people use kind of rape analogies when they're trying to critique the reform view of this, but it is a, it is, it is a, a work of God against our will to bring us to the point where we do finally will to, to believe. You know, you say that uh, with respect to the relational um, uh, dismissal of reform theology is you often hear people say that the Holy Spirit is a gentleman, you know, that he won't, that he won't um, overpower your will. And I mean, that's the flip side of what you, about what you're speaking. And I, and I always think about that. And I point out to people that particularly parents or, or people who have neighbors, i.e. their, their parents or their, their loved ones who are not Christians, like how do you actually pray to God about their salvation? You're not praying that, that you're not praying to them. You know, you're not hoping that maybe this Sunday, you know, maybe this Sunday the preacher will really knock one out of the park so that they get saved. Like, that's not how you pray. Like, no one actually prays like an Arminian, at least the way I understood it. They pray like a Calvinist, meaning that they pray to Almighty God to drag my son out of the water, like drag my father kicking and screaming against his will, despite his protestations and against everything he's ever said, he's about to die and let me, let me baptize him, you know, let me, let him cry out to you. I mean, that's, that's actually how people live. And I always point this out to people. I say, you know, you, you think it sounds good, um, you know, that, that sort of the Holy Spirit is a gentleman or that you have this, you know, that, that you're sort of holding out the hope and that they need to choose and that, you know, you chose. And so they need to choose also like you, you, that sounds only good in the abstract because when push comes to shove, think about your own prodigal in your life. Think about the time when you were a prodigal. Like, did you just one day wake up, you know, I mean, like the prodigal son and say, well, I guess I've had enough of these pig pods, you know, it's like, well, maybe, but most people, um, got to a point where they were um, blindsided, like Paul, you know. And even then, who the woke you up? That's right. That's exactly right. Like, I mean, a lot of people eat pig pods the rest of their lives, you know. Like, what else is there, right? It's like C.S. Lewis said, we're playing with mud pies. Like, what else is there until you realize that, that there's something altogether different? And, um, you know, again, that's not to demean or to dis- dismiss um, people that may disagree with us on this, but I do think pastorally speaking, from a preaching and a pastoral care perspective, that if you think that people's problems are that they have not uh, had their wills sufficiently stoked in order to first choose God and then continue to choose God, I mean, that's the problem. So if you had the freedom to choose in the beginning, why do you yeah. not have still have the freedom to choose the rest of your life? And so what happens is at the point where you need to be confident that you did not choose uh, the most, which is the point where you feel like you're at the end of your rope and you, you either have this picture of God holding you or you holding the rope, well, that's a much different way of praying. It's a much different way of walking through the situation, a much different way of, of being a Christian. And so that's why I always say this. Like, it doesn't mean that you can't be a Christian. And, and I'm not going to de-church someone. And I have friends who disagree with me on this. But, but if you come to my church or if you come to a church that I would go to, the picture is always going to be God has, has grabbed you, cannot let you go. You know, what does the Apostle Paul say in Romans 8? You know, he says that, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that they might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those who called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. And that's, that's what we talked about last week. That was the reformers called the golden chain of redemption. The foreknowledge ultimately culminates in the glorification. And would that all would be glorified is a cry of, I think, the redeemed compassioned human hearts, but that they all will be and would, and if they all will be is left up to God and God alone. 
I mean, it seems like we have these three words or th- three ways of doing theology are just sort of placing the human will at a different point in the stratum. The Pelagians would say that the human will is the first step in the salvific process. The first thing that has to happen is you need to choose to orient yourself toward God. Whereas the Arminians would put the human will as the second step. The first step is that the Lord extends grace to you. The second step is that you orient yourself toward that. Whereas the Reformed would say the human will is only actually acting against what the Lord would have you do, and he needs to save you despite yourself. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think I've read several several of R.C. Sproul's criticism, the late R.C. Sproul's criticism of Arminianism, and I, I, he goes to the many places where Paul ends up saying, you know, you know, we we have we have nothing to boast about. We God God's work in, of salvation leaves the sinner who's been redeemed nothing to boast about at all. And in either of those first two systems, Pelagianism. Of course, the sinner has something to boast about. Well, I, I, I chose Jesus. I did the right thing. I stopped doing evil and started doing good. And in Arminianism, the sinner has something to boast about. You know, that my neighbor over here wasn't as wise as sure. I am. I, I, I decided to follow Jesus. And, and this other guy, well, he, he's getting what he deserves. But I, I heard the call. I made the choice. And so here I am. You know, so that's a boast. That's yeah. a, that is yeah. a boast of yeah. your own superiority to the other. And your well, and it doesn't have to be, you know, I think it, it's a, a fair criticism of that is it doesn't have to be uh, turned into a contemptuous boastfulness, but it does still retain, even in the most compassionate Arminian something about part, it still does retain better. something about your wisdom, right. your piety, your sanctity, your holiness, like something about it. Even if you are the most humble, you know, right. person, you still, that's the distinction, you know, as opposed to the awesome uh, just sort of trembling, you know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul says, you know, in Philippians, the awesome reality that but for literally nothing other than the grace of God, you may not be saved. Um, and that's an awesome, an awesome thing. And it's not something to take lightly. And it's certainly not. And it should then should, you know, well, the law and gospel here, but there you go. Stop shooting on me. But it should uh, manifest in a uh, form of preaching, you know, it uh, doesn't mean you have to become a, a, an ordained preacher, but it does become, come meet this man who told me everything about my life. You know, I once was lost, but now I'm found was, I mean, whatever, however you want to put it. And that's, that's the growth of the church. That's the work of sanctification. And that's the, the, the continuing power of God, uh, the doctrines of grace, you know, in, in the life of the believer. And I mean, you know, not that we should too philosophize it, but it's not like this is relegated simply to the Apostle Paul. I mean, the entire history of the nation of Israel, the Jews, is nothing other than the election of God. I mean, that's all it is. Like, why not the Armenians? Why not, I mean, not the uh, Armenians? Why not the Canaanites, <laughs> the Philistines? Why not, yeah, whenever you hear about the Armenian genocide, yeah, you're like, yeah, wait, yeah. they were, come on now. Um, but, you know, why not the, the Egyptians? Why, you know, why the Israelites? Well, why indeed? You know, but who are you, oh man? Where were you when I hung the stars and the moon? Right. Where were you when I set the foundations of the earth? I mean, that's the answer. And yeah. if that's not sufficient for you, well then, 
well then you know i don't know what to i don't know what else to tell you but that seems to has have be what god's answer to some of these um impertinent questions <laughs> and for a, the sinner who is prone to turn away from god that is good news I mean, the lutheran assertion that all we contribute to our salvation is sin and resistance is terrible if we don't have a god who chooses us yeah well, that's what the 39 article says to the carnally minded. You know, mm-hmm. this, is an op- an op- this is an opportunity for resentment or uh, licentiousness. You know, you either resent this because you say, well, then who could be saved or it's not fair, you know, what, or it says, well, if, you're, if I'm saved, whether I do or don't do anything I want to do or don't do, well, then I'm just going to go do what I want. I mean, that's what the, but for the spiritual, <laughs> you know, it's hard not to read that and say, oh, yes, thank you. Uh, but, <laughs> but I think. You know, and we've talked about, I mean, sort of the, our various ways of being converted um, to this. Um, but I still come back to the point that pastorally speaking, it seems counterintuitive that this would be the most pastoral way of approaching a sinful person until you actually involve yourself with sinners. And you either look at them as ignorant or sheep that are hard of hearing or have, you know, their Walkmans or they're looking at their iPads too much, or they're actually just self-absorbed. They're uh, incurvatus in se is what you're saying. You know, they're curved in on themselves and maybe not in every place or they wouldn't be in church, but in enough places it is continuing to evince their need for a savior week in and week out. And if your way of dealing with them is that they just haven't gotten their wills all mustered up this week um, as well as you have or did or you should. Well, you know, I don't want, I'm um, glad you're not my father. <laughs> you know, I'm glad you're not my wife or my friend because that's not what I need to hear in the midst of yeah. my sin and rebellion. I need to be called once again to my knees and worship the, the mercy of God in Christ for sinners. I mean, that's what, that's what you need to hear. There is a, a perceived, you know, the, the perceived unfairness is, okay, well, from the Reformed view, God then only gives grace to believe to some, and he lets others die. How is that fair? I mean, that's, that's the pastoral question that people will ask when you preach any kind of form of predestination that's associated with Reformed thought. And you, know, you, you have to kind of back up with that and say, okay, well, well who, are, who is this group of people that God is dealing with? He's not dealing with a, n- a morally neutral lump of clay. He's, he's dealing with an openly rebellious, defiant set of people who all deserve hell, right? So, so you might think of it as, you know, in our, even in human law, we recognize that a governor of a state has the authority to grant pardon or clemency to criminals. He can just pardon a criminal uh, by his own fiat. Um, and that's, under, that's not, that seems unjust because the, because the rest of the criminals who aren't pardoned are not, are not in jail because of some, because they're innocent. They're there because, of, they're there because they've committed a crime and they're paying the punishment. Um, and yet we also see that while it might be merciful to, for a governor to grant pardon to you know, 20 or 30 prisoners a year, it would be horrible if the governor were to say, okay, everybody, you're all out of jail. Uh, right now, I grant pardon to the entire prison population of New York State. I mean, no one would to live there. So for the governor to be just, he has to not pardon everyone. For the governor to, be, uh, to have some use of that pardon and mercy, he would pardon, pardon some. So you know, just on a human level, that kind of makes sense. On the divine level, yes. I mean, God must show forth his justice by... Taking the sin in the world onto himself. Condemning yeah. sinners, and he also must show his mercy by saving sinners. So mm-hmm. the only way to do that is through 
uh, is through choosing to give pardon to some and not to others. Yeah, go ahead. But I still, and I still think, I think this is how the conversation still goes somewhat awry uh, because I find, and I'm very sympathetic to Calvin's theology and I would consider myself reformed, or at least in the reformed stream, um, albeit influenced by Luther because in Luther's commentary on Genesis, you know, he's hearing some of these, um, his parishioners or some people writing to him or, or in his orbit, um, getting all twisted up in knots about this. You know, who's saved? How do you know? Like, what is the uh, marks of justification? You know, how do you know that you're a, you're really part of the elect? You know, what if I just think I'm part of, you know, all of this stuff going on. And and something I, I'm, I'm not quoting directly from it, I should have looked it up, but but essentially what his comment, his, his excursus was, you know, we don't know who God has chosen, but we know how he chooses, and he chooses those who hear his proclamation and respond to a preacher. And so if you're concerned about your your friend, go preach to them. Like, if you're concerned about, you know, I tell people all the time, well, they're so worried about their nephew or their son. I was like, well, when's the last time you talked to them about Jesus? Like, did you, uh, you know, you can say bring them to church, but I don't know if that's effective enough. Like, you're the father, you're the friend, you're the 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 uncle like you're the person and to the extent that you're genuinely worried about this which i'm you know sympathetic to um here's how this works is that how can they hear unless someone is preached how can they preach unless someone is sent and you very well may be that preacher in the life of the work of god and his electing your beloved you know the person about whom you're 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 worried and so i think you know the, the old axiom or at least one that was taught to me was that that Luther preached to the elect, and this may not be fair to Calvin, but at least for certain forms of post-Dortianism, Calvinism, is that Calvinists preached about the elect. And so whereas Luther preached confident that his word, the word of God would not return void, and that people would be brought to faith through hearing, um, the, the, there was a certain strain of Calvinists that began to just describe what it would look like if you were the elect, and therefore, you know, we've talked about this, Matt, so a certain form of spiritual discipline was just to sort of acknowledge, you know, insert, internally try to determine whether or not your heart was lining up with the right desires right. and whether or not you were sort of sanctified in yourself enough, which was the exact opposite and wrong way to look. Um, right. But nevertheless, it is a certain sort of rotten fruit of a... So, um, of, yeah, of no, I think you're right. So, yeah, this last Sunday, uh, a Christian was asking about the differences between... Uh, Lutheran theology, Anglican theology, and Reformed theology, and you know, in some ways, we're very much Reformed when it comes to predestination, when it comes to the sacraments in particular. But but when it comes to the, the kind of introspection, where you you look within to see whether or not you're redeemed by, do I have the right inclinations of heart? Do I have? Do I do the right deeds? Do I do it? You kind of check the fruit. That's more of the kind of Reformed moving toward Puritanism way of thinking through Christian life. Uh, whereas I think Anglicans tend to turn more toward the Lutherans here and see your, your justification and the proof of it as an objective thing. Do you trust in the promise of Christ? Yes. Okay. Well, then you are justified. Then you're, that you, then you're assured of your salvation. It's not, it's not, don't, don't get caught up checking on on your fruits because every single human being starts off in a different place and fruits look differently for everybody and so you're going to get you're going to get depressed do you trust in jesus if so yes if, if yes then you are uh you are the elect you're part of the elect it seems like when we come to um the idea of the will and christians it sounds like we're all 
agreeing, as we've said before, of course, that we can't underestimate the human problem and that this is why the paradigm of Christianity is not a mistaken person who needs to be given the right information or a person moving in the wrong direction who needs to be rerouted to the right one. It is a dead person who Mm -hmm. needs to be raised to new life. Absolutely. Do we want to take a minute or two to talk about Molinism? We are nearing the end of the time we allot ourselves, but that was one of the specific questions that we were asked. Does one of you want to take a shot at defining the word Molinism? Uh, okay, so it was, a, it was actually a Roman Catholic idea. Um, it was one of the ways that uh, there was a, an apologetic, um, or an attempt to formulate an, apolog- an apologetic against Calvinism. Um, and the idea, let me just kind of, it's, it is kind of complicated, uh, but God in eternity past um, has three types of, of knowledge. The first type of knowledge is the na- knowledge of those necessary, the necessary things. So you might think principles of logic, foundational, cannot be changed, things that must be, if anything is to be. Um, Outside of God himself. Yeah, that's the key. That's interesting. Yes, that, that, that it does seem to be outside of it is outside of God Himself. And then there's kind of this contingent knowledge or uh, knowledge of counterfactuals. So if you're gonna if you're gonna have a world with free creatures who make their own choices, you're gonna have lots of different variables. You're gonna have a lot, millions of different variables. So God has knowledge of how how each world comes out with free creatures exercising the full range of their of their freedom. Right, so so he sees just a multitude of different possibilities, um, and then this is all before he decrees anything, or he creates anything. Then he chooses the best possible one, and and that that is what we have now. So he can know. So the so the Molinists will go back to the scriptures and see things like well. Uh, uh, Jesus knowing that the men of Sodom would have repented had they had the knowledge that the people of Capernaum have. Uh, how do you know that? Well, because he had knowledge of all these myriad of different worlds in which, in which the people of Sodom had had that information and didn't have it, but he chose this one. So there's this kind of counterfactual knowledge that he has that testifies to this multitude of worlds that God chose between. And so the benefit of that is you get to preserve the idea of human free will, libertarian free will, really. Um, and God's sovereignty because God's the one who chose to make it come to pass. Um, and so you can be a very, I mean, I, I always think that's not just compatible with Arminianism. That's compatible with, you know, Pelagianism. There's not, there's, 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 that, that carves out room if you take it to have utter free will on the part of a human being. Um, and that's that's why it's so attractive, I think, to people who tend toward that. Um, but the problems, I think, and maybe JD can say more about this. But the, the basic problem, and, and you mentioned it a minute ago, Nick, is is that God becomes simply a, a card player at the table. Um, someone else is dealing the cards, right? Someone else is is determining what's possible. Um, the the necessary knowledge, the first type of knowledge, that's outside of himself. So the, where does that come from? Um, whereas I think in a, a a biblical understanding of, of God is that those principles of logic, those those necessary principles, are are not something outside of God, but those are there because of God. That they're they're inherent. They're, they're they're who God is, not beyond Him, and that God is free to determine any kind of world He wants from those. Yes. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things about it. I mean, one of the one of the things that you could push back on immediately, which is what actually happened, as we'll see, um, is that you still have to come to grips with the fact that God, if in this system, still chose this world that that we live in. So this world, like this was, as Leibniz would say, who's a philosopher that came um, after uh, Molina, was um, that this is the best of all possible worlds. I mean, there's a variation of that. Like God has seen, seen from, you know, from eternity past, um, all the specific variations and all of how it could be. And this one that we are living in now is the one um, that's the best option he had, which was brought up by no none other than Voltaire, you know, the great um, sort of, I'm not sure he was an atheist, but he certainly did not like the church. And he certainly didn't like Leibniz, you know, in his famous play Candide, where he mocks this, you know, after the um, plagues and the, the Lisbon earthquake and all of these things that went, took place in the world. And he has Professor Pangloss, you know, gloss over everything, goes through, um, takes Candide all around the world and keeps befalling all these terrible fates befall him. And yet this is the best of all possible worlds. You know, this was being mocked and pilloried because at the end of the day, if that is how God operates in the world, he's impersonal to a certain degree. He's not known and he can't be therefore trusted other than to have put forward this best of all possible worlds. Where you look at a world full of pestilence, disease, plague, death, and destruction. And you say, well, I'm not sure I, I like this God. Um, it's, which is why I think Molinism and a lot of the sort of speculation about middle knowledge and ultimately you see now in the open theist and sort of the, the, the questions about the limitations of God's foreknowledge in the world and ultimately is simply his power and his omniscience are way stations or rest stops on the way to on the way to atheism or at least agnosticism uh, because it's not a Christian idea God did not uh, was not surprised by Pharaoh's hardened heart he actively hardened it God was not surprised by um, by anything that happened and I know that's not exactly what's going on in Molinism but the idea that God is not actively involved in the the providential workings of his creatures um, is is it doesn't stand up to biblical scrutiny and certainly uh, sort of raises as many questions as it seems to answer. It doesn't sound to me like good news at all. It posits a God who is powerful, I guess, in that he got to choose which world exists. But if this is the world that we got, as you said, what does that say about the Lord and what, what does our freedom in such a world mean? I mean? What what would a Molinist say that the good news about this worldview is? I mean, I think from their perspective, the good news is, is that man that man is in charge of his own destiny, and so ultimately, even though yeah, God chose the best quote unquote best possible world, um, he is not responsible for people choosing to go to hell. He he's not responsible for uh, for the person who is condemned. Okay, so this is this is the version of the world in which I choose to go to yeah, via yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah, and and that that's satisfying to a lot of people. I mean, because, but see, what I've seen, it must only be satisfying to the people who are Christians in this possible world, because I would <laughs> I would hear that if I weren't a Christian and say, well, wait, was there a variation of this world where I don't choose to spend life in hell? I mean, maybe I would, maybe I wouldn't care. Maybe that's the point, but like. If there is a multiverse theory, as a way of speaking, you know, where one of these, I was rich and famous, and and then the other one, I'm me, you know, is like, well, who is this God that that chose thus? Yeah, you know, and I, I mean, think that's where, 
again, we're fine. We're good. This is what happens when you get, I mean, I think I mentioned it last week, but I love the Luther's three lights, you know, and he has, I have this picture of this, this sort of ceiling whereby we and our sinful desire to be like God, like continue to, to bang against it. You know, we want more. Why do I have to go to bed at, at eight? You know, why can't I, why do I have to, to eat these vegetables? Why can't I eat of this tree? You know, these, these, these sort of childish, faithless and untrusting uh, exclamations to, to God and then constantly being brought back through the power of the scriptures, through the power of preaching to the fact that I am your, I am your father, you know, our father who art in heaven, you know, this is the, the good God for you. This is the one who, who took your sin on himself. This is the one that can be trusted, even particularly in those areas of, of, of confusion, doubt, and and anxiety. This is precisely why he had to go to such lengths to establish for you a place whereby you could run from these areas of darkness and these areas of confusion into the bright light of his love for you and his son on a cross. And I think that's where um, I'm unsurprised. You know, the Lutherans will talk about God hiding, you know, and I think God hides in these areas. I think he doesn't want to be, he doesn't want someone to finally write the definitive book about how he, justice and mercy can be reconciled or about how, um, you know, free will and divine election can finally be, uh, to be reconciled. You know, John J.I. Uh, Packer did a really admirable job in evangelism and the sovereignty of God, but that is not the final word because there is no final word other than Christ and him crucified for you. You know, this is the final word. And until that is the final word enough, then nothing will satisfy you. Nothing will finally answer you. There'll be one more objection, one more, one more reason why. If I just read one more book, I hear one more sermon, and, and I'm sympathetic to that. But I think that's part of the process of being brought low, of being brought to a place where finally you say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Like this is, again, and I'm not, that's not anti-intellectual. I mean, that's not a, that's not a fideistic, you know, just, just retreat from the arena of ideas. The ideas are necessary walk on the way to finally being humbled um, to the place of, of worship and of, of prayer and of trust. And, um, you know, that's, I think that's, that's ultimately the end of all of these quests. Yeah, I've said it before, you, you, <laughs> When you're going in for surgery, at least me, I'm not sure about you, but when I'm, when I'm going into some kind of some medical procedure and the doctor you know, tries to tell me what exactly is going on and I'm, it's completely beyond me because I don't know medicine, I don't know biology very much. So he says, I'm going to take this tube and tie it here and take this muscle and move it there and I'm going to do it. I'm just, I don't know, man. Just, That's right. just knock me out and do what you're going to do. We're okay with that, you know. We're we're usually okay with all right. Well, there's a there's a limit to my understanding, but I trust this doctor to do a good job on me, or I wouldn't let him put me under. Under, but when it comes to God, you know, there's we when we come up to those limits of our ability to understand, there's something inside the human person that says no. Uh, God's going to conform to my knowledge. He's going to conform to my the limits of my understanding, and if there's something beyond that then I'm going to ascribe it to God's being wicked or some kind of yeah. <laughs> something else. That's, that's just depravity, the depravity, the fallenness of the human nature, I think, raising its head at those points. Well, and that's what Jesus meant when he said faith like a child. I mean, it yeah. didn't mean, that didn't mean like ignorant. It meant that like a child actually trusts, you know, until we grow yeah. up and realize that our heaven, our earthly fathers are not, um, you know, hundred percent trustworthy and hopefully not in, in not hopefully more trustworthy than not, but they're certainly not as trustworthy as your, as your heavenly father. <clears throat> Even when it says, you know, Jesus says, as if, a, if an evil father 
will do this, that, or the other for us. So, and how much more will your heavenly father do? And I think that again, brings us back to the work of the church. You know, our work as heralds, as proclaimers, is to trust the work of the spirit to bring people back into that relation that Jesus revealed in his prayer that he gave to us, that our father, you know, it's like that's that song that everyone sings, you know, a good, good father. Like he actually <laughs> is trustworthy, yep. good, and has is for us. And the fact that we look outside of his son to all of the ways that, that he seems to be against us is is by design because he was supposed to, he has revealed himself in his son so that his son will be exalted and raised. And so when we look for him outside of that in our philosophy or our experience or our um, even our own or maybe more most importantly our own sanctification, you know, our own works, well then we shouldn't be surprised that we are left cold and frightened and alone you know, like behind the tree that God found Adam hiding behind. But we are then to turn and run, you know, run back to where we know he has been revealed and find confidence and trust in what he's done for us in his son. And I think that's ultimately, whether you call that Calvinism or, or reformed theology or um, whatever you want to call it, it simply has the desired result that the Apostle Paul lays out in his letters, which is that Christ will be glorified, that Christ will be raised up, and that, as John the Baptist says, as I must decrease and he will increase, and nothing will protect that reality more than a robust understanding of God's sovereign electing power in his, um, in, in his wisdom and in his, his majesty. Amen. Well... Guys, we are about out of time. I need to go play some flexi pong. Um, as always, we have not said all that Make can be sure said, stretch, especially. Nick. What was that? Make sure you stretch. You don't want to pull up. Yeah, right. I'm an old man now. Um, as always, though, especially on a topic like this, we have not said all we could say, as usual. If there's something that you think we should have said, or if you have an idea for a topic for a future episode, please send it to us at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com. We'd love your input. Thanks so much for listening. We'd love you to uh, rate the podcast on iTunes. That really helps. Uh, thank you to Matt Kennedy and J.D. Koch. I'm Nick Lannon. We'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Mm-hmm.